0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, joins us to discuss school safety, child vaccination, and of course, COVID-19 data. Last month, the Ford government postponed the Housing Affordability Summit due to the rise of COVID-19 cases. The summit is now on for later this month. What's going to be accomplished and what are the expectations? Well, we'll talk about that. And a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers is now in effect here in Canada. What are some of the major concerns and the impact? Yeah, you'd be surprised. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what what everybody's been talking about for the last little while, the Omicron variant and the impact that it is having. Uh, Here in Ontario, especially, uh, we're into a a quasi-lockdown, of course, because of some of the restrictions that have been put in place. Uh, We're told that there's going to be a reevaluation of that in a few days but where are we on that and what are the implications going forward and to that end we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Karen Moore Dr. Moore of course is the chief medical officer of health for the province of Ontario uh doctor uh pleasure to have you back on the program thanks so much for the time today
1: oh good morning Bill
0: uh right off the bat let me deal with the I I guess what has kind of turned into a controversial issue uh as I'm sure you're aware doctor you got a little pushback a couple of days ago uh, about some comments you were making about uh, vaccinations for children uh, a couple of the opposition members here, more specifically Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca, the leaders of the two opposition parties, uh, suggesting that you were vacillating about vaccinations for kids. Uh, that was the accusation anyway. I think you probably want some time to comment on, on first of all, what you said and, and, and what, what how they reacted to it.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry if anyone interprets that I, I vacillate on immunization. I absolutely am supportive of immunization as the means of... Uh, uh, reducing our personal risk and the community risk. So I am so sorry if any of my words were misinterpreted. That is certainly not my intent. Uh absolutely want to embrace immunization from five and up uh, and thank all Ontarians that have come forward to be immunized. We've got a great track record in Ontario. point 5 million uh, people now have come forward for their third doses even. Uh, and we know the third doses are so important, especially if you've got an underlying medical disease and or if you're older. So thank you to all Ontarians that have been uh, immunized, especially with their booster. Uh, but uh, there should be no doubt from as a Chief Medical Officer of Health that I embrace prevention and prevention through immunization for anyone that's eligible for these vaccines. I'm so sorry if that was ever um, misconstrued from what I said.
0: Yeah, yeah, the root of this was a question uh, to you, I guess, by one of the media folks here about uh, mandatory vaccinations, especially in the school situations. Uh, That's not going to happen today, obviously, because of the the weather situation. But when they get back, uh, the government had talked about uh, making vaccinations available even in some school situations. Some of us are old enough, doctor, to remember the old days when everybody in the school got vaccinated. We all lined up and rolled up our sleeves and got our polio vaccines and everything else. Uh, Are we heading in that direction? Some places are are seriously considering that. Uh, The the premier doesn't seem to really want to go down that road. What are your thoughts about mandatory vaccinations, especially when it comes to school-aged children? Oh, so um, we uh,
1: are absolutely trying to make the vaccines more accessible and available. And our letters going out today to school boards uh, to work with their local public health agencies uh, and through consent by the family and the parents. Uh, to be able to provide uh, immunization in certain school settings. Obviously, we can't be in every single school, but we'll create regional schools um, that um, can provide uh, immunization to students. So that is one means by which we're trying to make vaccines more accessible and available to the the school-age group. um, uh, And um, absolutely encouraging parents to take advantage of that. As well, we know uh, throughout Ontario, um, uh, the, the number of openings for clinics uh, is still significant uh, and if it's 84 days from your last dose and you haven't taken advantage of your booster, um, there's plenty of appointments. So please keep monitoring uh, the booking system, uh, your uh, Contact your local pharmacy, your healthcare provider. Um, the sooner you get your booster, all the better. And uh, you should be hearing about the school-based immunization clinics in, in the coming days
0: got an email from one of our listeners uh, just a couple of days ago. I wanted to uh, get you to address, if I could, doctor. It has to do with the flu uh, vaccine. Uh, This is flu season as well. Uh, And it's from Vanessa. The the, the, gist of the email was, look, I've been trying for three and a half weeks now to get a flu vaccine. And the pharmacy keeps saying uh, there is none available. Uh, Apparently, the pharmacy is saying they've been ordering it and it's on back order. Is there a concern here about availability and supply for the flu vaccine, which which still is, is very much with us?
1: Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that because we have plenty uh, of flu vaccine available through uh, government pharmacies, uh, I mean, government storage. So um, the the pharmacy should be able to order additional vaccine. Um, The um, good news on this is that the amount of flu in Ontario, because we're washing our hands and wearing our masks, uh, the flu virus has had a really difficult time spreading uh, and, and hence uh, it's a very low risk at present uh, of influenza anywhere in Canada but uh, Ontario is remaining very low risk. So you do have time uh, to get immunized. I'm so sorry it's not available at your local pharmacy. You may want to shop around but that pharmacy, uh, I assure you that we we purchased more influenza vaccine this year than any prior year. Uh, and we do have uh, available supply.
0: We saw that last year, didn't we, that uh, because of the covid restrictions and and the protocol that we were all following, the, the flu season was pretty pretty negligible in in Ontario, wasn't it? Oh, it was it was
1: brilliant uh, and and it's a real lesson learned if we ever get a nasty influenza virus back, Um, We know now the tools that work so effectively at a population level um, to to prevent its transmission. It's a great lesson learned. It reinforces those basic public health measures and and gives me confidence. If we have an influenza um, that is um, quite virulent, uh, that we we know now uh, how Ontarians uh, can prevent its transmission effectively.
0: With uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, the uh, Chief Medical Officer. Uh, Doctor, I know you check the numbers daily on this. Uh, A phrase comes to mind that we used extensively, of course, at the beginning of this pandemic, almost two years ago now, flatten the curve. Uh, The numbers that you've been studying right now seem to indicate that ICU and hospitalization numbers are not accelerating. Uh, Does that indicate that we're flattening the curve? And, and, uh, you know, uh, fingers crossed here, does that mean that maybe the worst is over?
1: Well, I, I... I think you've nailed it. Uh, You know, I do now see hope, Uh, and it was really over the last several days that we've seen uh, the number of people getting admitted. Uh, as caused by COVID and or uh, admitted to the intensive care unit it really does seem to be slowing and plateauing. Uh, so I, I do see hope that all the sacrifices that Ontarians have been making uh, with the public health measures and I'm very sorry they had to be implemented. Um, all those sacrifices are showing a benefit that as a community, uh, we together are able to slow the transmission of this virus uh, and to protect our health care system. So uh, as another key metric is How many staff are absent due to illness in the in the the healthcare system in particular? And I've heard from uh, CEOs and leaders of the hospital sector that that number is slowing. Uh, So that's very good news for the coming weeks that we can continue to provide care at the right time at the right place for all Ontarians who get ill from this virus. Uh, And and, um, that was our key purpose of putting these public health measures: was to protect the system so that we could provide care. Uh, and even though we're at around 100% occupancy in the hospital, uh, no one likes having uh, that level of occupancy. We are, um, uh, I think, plateauing, um, uh, and, and uh, I do, as you've mentioned, see hope um, that um, uh, that the sacrifices we're making are working.
0: The, uh, the the protocol and the the regulations in which we're living under our territory right now are going to be with us for a few more days anyway and you were quite clear last week doctor uh, answering some media questions uh that that date uh, that's coming up here isn't didn't necessarily mean that was going to be the end of these regulations it would be a reevaluation uh, in light of the uh the numbers that we were just talking about right now uh you mentioned the phrase our light at the end of the tunnel can we see some easing of some of these restrictions because you've heard it and you know, i certainly do on this program every day of uh, people saying look you know, I, I'm watching the Leaf game on Saturday night. There's nobody in the stands. Uh, you turn on the game from Boston or Detroit or anything else, and there's 17,000 people there. And they seem to be doing just fine. Are we overreacting? Uh, and, and, and I know that that's pretty much human nature. People are getting a little frustrated by this. But uh, with this light at the end of the tunnel, do you see us moving a little back towards whatever normal is?
1: Well, well, certainly that's a government decision. Uh, and I, they're going to be looking at the same data that I'm seeing. Uh, and I do see uh, the hope um that we can reduce public health measures over time uh, and uh you know but but i i I'm not the decision maker uh, the government is. Uh, I just want to point out the United States, uh, despite you know being able to attend a hockey game, has their highest hospitalization rates they've ever experienced the most number of people in the intensive care units they've ever had to deal with. Uh, their death rate continues to be three times higher than what we've experienced. We've made sacrifices to protect health in Ontario and as a result, a third less death rate. Uh, from this virus as compared to the United States. So, I personally don't like being compared to the United States, uh, given the metrics, uh, and, and you know, 800,000 Americans have died from this virus alone uh, in the last two years. Um, uh, I think we should take great pride in how uh, we as a province have worked together to protect each other, uh, to uh, decrease the risks of transmission, to make sacrifice to protect our health system. To me, um, that strengthens us as a society and as a community. And, and, and uh, I am so appreciative uh, of the sacrifices that Ontarians have made to keep us all healthier.
0: Dr, one last question for you, and I want to clear something up because I'm getting a lot of emails about this over the last couple of days uh, about the uh, about the, the veracity of, of Omicron and saying, oh, come on, it's nothing more than a bad cold. What's the big deal here? Uh, as you mentioned, hospitalizations are down. Uh, you told us right from the outset here that, look, it affects different people in different ways. You might get it and you might just feel like you've got a bad cold or the flu. Uh, yet we've seen some other results that are, are less than attractive, shall we say. And maybe the best example of that is is Alfonso Davies, of course, from the, the, the men's soccer team here, an elite athlete, to be sure, uh, incredible athlete who tested positive. And uh, he's not going to be playing soccer for the next little while because he is suffering from that inflamed heart uh, condition that you talked about that could be a result of COVID and was in his particular situation. So I think that underscores what you were saying, that this is still very serious and it can impact people pretty severely.
1: Yeah, I was so sorry to hear about his medical condition. I hope he fully recovers, and I'm glad they're watching him carefully. He certainly is a treasure for for Canada. Uh, And you're absolutely right. We still have... Uh, today, 334 Ontarians on ventilators as, re- as a result of their exposure uh, to this virus, uh, and half of them are unvaccinated, uh, and it's a key message to anyone that hasn't taken advantage of vaccination yet, uh, get your first dose as quick as you can, get your second dose. It is protective against the, the worst outcomes associated with this virus. Um, th- that vaccination is protective against admission to hospital and the need for Ventilation. No vaccine is 100% protected, but my goodness, 88% reduction in your risk for hospitalization, I'd take that any day over having to be in a hospital or be on a ventilator. Uh, and uh, I absolutely continue to encourage first, second, or third, and, and you know, fourth doses if you're immune suppressed, fourth doses if you're in a long-term care facility. These vaccines are... Uh, effective. It is not quote unquote mild, as some news reports have said. Uh, I know uh, everyone on listening must know someone by now that's had it. Um, yes, some will have minor symptoms, but certainly some are having lingering uh, coughs fevers, aches, um, flu, significant flu-like symptoms associated with it, uh, even with vaccination, but their risk of getting hospitalized is much, much, much reduced, which is what I would think anyone wants to avoid being in a hospital or in an intensive care unit.
0: Doctor, I always appreciate your time in the program and uh, and to give us an update on what's going on. Uh, thank you so much for this. Uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully there will be some good news uh, down the road, hopefully not too far down the road either, but thank you again for today, Doctor.
1: My pleasure, and
0: thank you, and, and stay safe. You betcha. Dr. Kieran Moore, Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province of Ontario. And as we said, you know, the doctors we've talked to, including Dr. Moore, are hoping that uh, just put this to bed right off the bat here, that the Omicron's no big deal, uh, it's a walk in the park, as one person said on social media. As a Global's Kyle Stanton reports, the ongoing uncertainty about COVID means that nobody should really let their guard down. While some may still get quite ill, evidence shows the Omicron variant is overall much less severe in nature. Vaccinations and boosters allowing the vast majority of those infected to recover at home. But there is still so much we don't know. If I tell
2: you that, you know, only 3% of this population might have been hospital on an individual
0: level, you'll have no idea if you're going to be part of the 3% or 97%. Another unknown whether or not there are any long-term effects well uh that seems to be the bottom line here is uh it's going to affect different people differently and it's still very very dangerous and we need to be cognizant of that and as uh, dr moore mentioned uh, the majority of people that are in icus and on ventilators right now are the unvaccinated yes there are people that are vaccinated that do get quite sick too but there are people who get the flu vaccine and get the flu and uh many as uh, the doctor told us of the people that are in icus right now that have been vaccinated are suffering from pre-existing conditions uh, and of course, they're more vulnerable to uh, to whatever impact it might have on them. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another survey has been released this time from Royal Le Page uh, that talks about what's going on here with housing prices here in the province of Ontario. And uh, according to their numbers uh, and the numbers we've seen from so many other surveys, this housing market is poised to continue with price growth uh, following double-digit gains in the fourth quarter. So what's going on here? Well, uh, to analyze this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Tim Hudak. Tim, of course, is the CEO of uh, the Ontario Real Estate Association and uh, has his finger on the pulse of what's happening here. Tim, always a pleasure. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Of course, Bill, thanks for having me on, and uh, kind of suitable, I think. You played uh, Our House uh, coming in yep. from the commercials, and the name of the band that sang that, if I recall from my 80s trivia, was Madness. So
0: it, it was. It kind of fits, doesn't it? <laughs> you got your stuff. Yeah, I know. You, you and your 80s music trivia, I know. Uh, I, I would never challenge you on that, Tim uh great song great band you're absolutely right so what's going on here i mean I, I guess the bottom line this tim is you and you've been talking about this for the longest time we got a lot of people that want to buy houses and we don't have enough product i mean that, that's really what it comes down to i mean there are you know more factors involved in it but that that's really what what's going on here isn't it
2: you nailed it in uh, in five seconds there uh, bill uh there is a significant increase in demand i'm happy to talk about what's behind that and a um huge problem when it comes to supply in the marketplace, particularly for first-time home buyers and for move up buyers, those that, you know, the kids come along and they want a bit more space. It's at epidemic levels uh, throughout our province, not just Hamilton, Burlington, London, Windsor, pretty well every corner of our province. And it's become a really cruel game of musical chairs. where We have more and more people circling fewer and fewer houses and a lot of frustration.
0: So let's let's talk about the demand first of all. Where is it coming from? And, and everybody has weighed in on this. Uh, not just people in the industry, not just home builders. Uh, politicians have, commentators have. There's a rather interesting article from uh, I'm sure you read it from John Ibbotson in the Globe and Mail last week that suggested, look, let's just build houses. And I, I, I think he was tongue in cheek, but I mean, <laughs> that's how frustrating this whole exercise is getting right now. Why is there so much demand?
2: number of factors behind that. Uh, number one, uh, the main driver is that millennial generation, which because of uh, immigration, it tends to be younger as well or larger families, will be, Bill, the, the biggest generation in the history of Canada. They are now entering the housing market, getting uh, promotions, uh, settling down, having families. That's the number one driver. What puts more rocket fuel in the tank is the bank of mom and dad. Their parents, the baby boomers uh, are retiring with a lot of wealth, and as much as they love their sons and daughters, would rather see them have a house of their own and get out of the basement, so they're helping finance those purchases. Mortgage rates uh, remain at relatively low levels, making housing investment attractive from a mortgage point of view. The economy is doing well, and the last factor is immigration now. As we're getting through COVID, hopefully, Bill, the taps are being turned back on with a significant demand for housing in urban areas coming from new Canadians.
0: Yeah, and, and I know some people have focused on that one thing and said, well, let's just uh, stop immigration, uh, and that should solve the problem. First of all, it's a pretty naive approach, and second of all, thankfully, uh, nobody I've seen in elected office, either at the provincial or federal level, is advocating for that sort of thing. I mean, that would that would cripple our economy. I mean, we rely on immigration uh, to fill those roles for the brightest and the best to come from other parts of the world. Uh, that's That's really the nature of Canada and the history of Canada, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it really is. Since uh, Canada became a country and even, even before it, it, we're just, frankly, not producing enough babies to expand our population to continue economic growth. And Canada, like you said, is a beacon to talent from around the world. That's a, a good thing. The, the issue here is a better uh, coordination bill between the federal government and the province municipalities. So the federal government, as you know, sets the target for immigrants, runs immigration program, and then they come into our country. The significant majority choose Ontario. The problem is the funding is not going to support uh, new immigrants coming in towards building more housing and infrastructure, expanding uh, education, and getting more people in the trades to help build. So if we have better coordination at the national provincial level, we can address this issue.
0: I can remember a conversation you and I had. This is a number of years ago when you were still in the political arena uh, about that funding situation, and it is somewhat problematic uh, because I know that at one time, I I think we're going back to the Kretchen or the Martin government, that's how long ago this was, uh, that they were allocating money, but basically they said it's going to go to to Montreal, Vancouver, and Toronto uh, uh, because those seem to be the biggest three centres. But (laughs) what happens is, of course, a lot of people move into those areas because that's where the jobs are, first of all. Uh, but they can't afford it, so they they gravitate to those outlying areas to Hamilton to Niagara, uh, even all the way down the 401 to London now that's it's it's there. and there is no federal assistance then the money stays in Toronto or wherever it is and and the rest of the cities are left to crawl and saying, what are we supposed to do here? there's you're absolutely right. there has to be a more broad based approach to this.
2: Uh, for sure, and you know there's a, a professor uh, Mike Moffat who's uh, with the Ivy School of business. yeah uh, we've had Mike on the show
0: many times yeah yeah
2: so you'll you'll probably remember some of his recent writing bill that he said uh, a big part of uh, what's driving the housing market are students coming into uh, Ontario and then you know talented students they get a good job and they want to to stay and so you see a lot of demand then for that type of housing around McMaster University or Western Ontario uh, Brock University. So this notion that all the money has to go into Toronto is really uh, outdated. It should go to those other centers as well.
0: All right, so I, I mean, we could talk for the next two hours about the supply concerns and why, what's causing it. The fact is, is, you know, people want a roof over their head. Uh, and now we get into the demand side. Uh, that's one part of it. But now when the, the, we have these prices going up, as you've talked about before, uh, it's it's housing stock. Do we have, have houses available on the market? Are we building the right kind of houses? And are we building them in the right places? And that's that's a, a pretty fiery debate in a lot of communities right now Tim
2: well uh, the answer sadly is is no <laughs> pretty well to each of those questions um I'll get to it in a second there there are signs of progress so i'm I'm happy to see that some of the stuff that you've talked about and I've talked about has gotten through the provincial level unfortunately not all municipalities in Hamilton is a real standout they seem seen back in time when it comes to housing supply um, around the same time that uh, the Royal LePage had they he points out about the increase in housing prices, Scotiabank put out a report on the supply side. And uh, they say we need to build 650,000 more homes uh, in Canada, uh, sorry, in Ontario, just to meet the national average in Canada. At the same time, we are way behind other G7 nations when it comes to of homes per people. And we've got a lot of space built, so it's kind of nuts that we're in this situation. So what do you do? Well, number one, it's got to start with the province. They have to see this as a housing affordability crisis that that great Canadian dream of owning your own home, investing in it, raising a family, is slipping away for the middle class in, in every corner of our province today. We need then to work with municipalities, I'd say with both a carrot and a stick, to expand housing supply, and target particularly three areas. Starter homes for the first-time buyer. Once you get your foot on the ladder, it's easier to move up. But I'd say those uh, move-up homes for young families, and we do need to see more rentals as well. Those are the three big areas I would target.
0: And by the way, to to that end, and, and to credit the government on this, the Ford government, uh, they did announce, uh, of course, some weeks ago, but a, a government housing affordability task force, uh, which was going to address this, uh, which included uh, some of the brightest and the best, including Tim Hudak, of course. Uh, you guys haven't met yet, though, haven't you, because of COVID? I mean, that, that was announced. And then, of course, the new restrictions went in play about 24 hours later, I think. Um, well, I'm happy to say that we have. Uh, we've oh, good, good. Right away. we just, just online, you're right, but we could get in person,
2: yeah. so we've been online, and we've been consulting across province. I'm really excited about what's happening. I can't really talk about it now until the report is finalized, So that task sure, force sure. is moving fast, and the minister is making sure we do. Um, the Ford government does deserve a, a lot of credit, not only for uh, the task force, but they actually brought forward legislation in 2018, and a lot of the advice that the Ontario Real Estate Association gave them, where I'm the CEO I got into that legislation, like eight out of 10 of our ideas. So that's now in place. It's like a toolbox for municipalities. Some municipalities are using the tools. And we actually did see last year and this year, uh, the biggest increase in housing supply we have seen for more than a decade. So some positive starts uh, there on the horizon. We saw more apartments being built as well. But, but there's catch up for about 10 years of neglect on this file. We need to put in about 100,000 homes a year just to help keep affordability under control. And right now, last couple of years, we've been around 80 to 90.
0: Are we building the right kind of homes, the the things that are actually going to attract buyers? You know, and, and you look at the Hamilton and London markets, for instance, where you're seeing, you know, these huge price increases in the last little while and bidding wars on some properties right now. Uh, and I know that communities, and you know what's gone on in Hamilton, of course, in the last little while, the debate about about you know, urban boundaries and we, we want to grow up, not out. Uh, and and that seems to be a common theme in a lot of communities right now. Uh, but if people don't like what's on the market, Tim, they're going to go someplace else.
2: They, it's called drive till you qualify. And, uh, I, and I worry about this for Hamilton. If you think housing prices are high right now in Hamilton, just wait till the Hamilton City Council gets done with you they basically decided uh, not to uh, move forward with increasing the urban boundary and uh, affordable middle-class homes they're going to concentrate only on one type of housing it looks like what does that mean it means that the single-family home is going to become even more unaffordable in hamilton and people will say i'll just drive farther they'll go into niagara into haldeman county towards brantford as well and drive up housing prices there and have a longer commute the reality is bill you need to build in both areas intensify absolutely give choices for smaller units in urban areas that will have its demand side. but people still will want that single family home. And if you neglect that area, people will drive further and housing prices will skyrocket even more.
0: The uh, staff report, by the way, and I just want to underscore this because I know a lot of people uh, have, you know, pointed the governments at the government of Queens park and say, well, those big bad guys in, in Queens park, they're the ones that are doing this. It's all about sprawl and making money for developers, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the staff report from the city hall, the city of Hamilton, was the one that said, "Yes, we want to do infill, but it's not going to be enough." And that was the gist of their report. That didn't come from developers. That came from the the, the staff of the city, in the planning development department, that simply said, "You're going to have to do both here if you want to accommodate uh, what's supposed to be happening here." And as you mentioned, city council decided not to to pay attention to that part of the report. Uh, but what does that do in 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 a situation like this for people that want a backyard uh, and and you know, I mean, we've talked about alleyway houses, and I know they're doing that in Toronto. We've talked about condominiums. It's not for everybody. Uh, housing stock is one part of this, but the availability of housing, uh, of the kind of housing we want, seems to be the driving factor here for an awful lot of people, Tim. They they want that back split that we seem to build so much of here in Ontario. They want that backyard. And if it's not there, like you say, they're going to find some place where, where they can find it. <laughs> some of them are actually even going out of province now because they can't afford anything that's going on here.
2: That's a big risk to um, To your earlier comments, Bill. You're absolutely right. The uh, city council in Hamilton waved the uh, white flag of surrender to a bunch of activists, quite frankly, who probably already have nice homes and don't really care if your son or daughter can afford one uh, down the road. They wanted to shut Hamilton down. And so far, it looks like they've succeeded. What does that mean? Well, people will drive further away to come to work or move to other communities, a risk to Hamilton. It will push housing affordability uh, through the roof in that area. Uh, and your last observation is a very good one. Now with the ability to work from home, you know, ARIA uh, in our research has had found that um, almost 60% of Ontarians, I believe it was 40 and under, uh, have actually been searching outside of Ontario to try to find a home. That's the next generation of entrepreneurs, Bill, the next generation of job creators. The talent that we've put through our education system are going to hightail out of the province based on housing prices alone and if we see the rest of the province follow Hamilton's model we're going to have a massive exodus of talent to other provinces or to the states
0: well and and to bottom line that tim uh, if i got a good friend of mine that you know i went to high school with and he started his own business an entrepreneurial attitude uh, he's in halifax now because that's that's where he could find a house that he could afford and he's his business is still thriving but he's doing it as you say online he's paying taxes in halifax now he's spending his disposable income in halifax now and not in this city and if that starts to happening on a, on a larger scale, uh, you know we get right back to that conundrum that many communities found themselves in some time ago, where there's going to be an extra burden on property taxpayers to foot the bill for running a, a community because there just aren't enough of them to spread it around.
2: I, I bet any realtor you talk to will talk about a client, uh, a talent that they've lost uh, to another province. Uh, the suburbs, you know, used to be the sort of the Stony Creeks or uh, Ancasters or you know Saga or whatever. Now the new suburbs for Ontario. Uh, are Halifax and uh, in Moncton uh, and uh, in Saint John, uh, New Brunswick. That's where we found a, a lot of people are are moving to. Look, the, the the challenge is that it just takes courage. Bill, the solutions are on the table. You know, reducing red tape and and run around and hassle it drives up uh, prices for the province to bring in both carrots and sticks to move municipalities forward. So they use the tools, but reward those that do. Perhaps tying infrastructure funding to providing more housing that people. Um, can't afford, using excess government properties, uh, for uh, example, intensifying along transit lines. Like, there is a realm of solutions uh, available. It just takes the courage to actually get the job done, keep our talent here, and for your listeners across the province today, to tell them that, yes, that Canadian dream of getting the keys to your own place can still be achieved by people who are working hard and paying taxes in this province.
0: I, I look forward to your report so we can talk about some of the details that you guys are going to recommend, Tim. But, I mean, I- I'm assuming and I'm hoping uh, that part of that report is going to be a message to government to say, look, guys, give your heads a shake, because even the quote-unquote assistance programs that they've offered are missing the mark. I mean, you know, they, they've said, okay, we want to make it more affordable for first-time buyers to get mortgages. That just increases demand. It's, there's still nothing to do with supply there. Uh, and and you know we're, we're going to do something of putting an extra tax on people that are land speculators, which as you and I have talked about, is a small, minuscule percentage of people in the market right now. That, that those aren't the main problems, but those seem to be the ones that governments are focusing on.
2: You know, it, it, you know, our, our research at the Ontario Real Estate Association shows that supply is is the the core issue. Uh, and you've had Mike Moffat on. I mean, he would agree with his study that it's about a hundred thousand homes per year we need to build up to a million homes. That's over 10 years, uh, obviously. And that will be to in- meet increasing demand, but also to play catch up with the, the gap that's there. They call that the affordability gap. That will make sure that housing prices don't continue to run away. With respect to things like, um, uh, for example, a higher land, tra- land transfer tax rebate for first-time buyers, so the benefit of that, I hear what you say on the demand uh, side, that it might uh, increase demand even more. It's a bit of a level playing field thing, though. Like if you're rich right now, you can tap into wealthy parents or your inheritance. You can play in the housing market. If you're trying to struggle up that ladder, maybe the first homeowner uh, in your family, it's tougher to make that down payment. So a case can be made, Bill, that that helps level the playing field between those that don't come from rich families uh, and those that
0: do. Which is only going to increase competition for the existing stock that's there, isn't it? Uh,
2: It's true, uh, but at least gives them a shot. But there's no doubt uh, anything that the main focus of government has to be on uh, increasing supply. Uh, And I listed earlier a a number of options uh, that are there, and including, too, on the ownership side. There are are new tools that work in the states and other countries that help get the down payment. For example, a a pension fund, a business, an investor, or maybe your friends could invest in a home together. You could have multiple owners uh, of a home. Maybe the new version of what you and I did in our university or college days, except on an ownership side, you know, could be allowed by provincial laws and CMHC rules to allow many folks to own and share a home and then sell off the shares of that home down the road. So there are a number of solutions uh, that are there. We, we just need the courage to finally act because we have moved from a housing affordability problem to a major housing affordability crisis.
0: Absolutely, and and of course, the big takeaways you mentioned in this LePage report and, and the ones that have been done previously, is that uh, this problem is not going away anytime soon. It's it's going to take some some tough decisions to be made here and and some positive government action. Uh, Tim, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today, and uh, we look forward to uh, the work you guys are doing on the task force. And uh, uh, we'll hook up, I'm sure, sooner than later to talk about the progress you're making. Appreciate the time cool. today, Tim.
2: No, thanks for your time and attention to this is important issue, Bill. Have a great day now.
0: You too. Tim Hudak, of course, the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. You're
2: listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We got concern, a big problem uh, with what's going on. Uh, And we know that uh, effectively this weekend, this past weekend, uh, the uh, new federal law has gone into effect, which is mandatory vaccination for truckers. Uh, But many experts say that uh, there is a reason for concern that this uh, vaccine mandate For truckers could compromise Canada's food security. Now, Ottawa reaffirmed yesterday that all truckers arriving in Canada are going to be required to be fully vaccinated against COVID 19 starting this past weekend, or they can't cross the border. Well, Global's Catherine McDonald has some of the details and some of the concerns.
2: Many of us take shopping for groceries for granted. But experts say because of a new COVID 19 vaccine mandate for truck drivers entering Canada starting Saturday, there is reason for concern.
3: I think it's important to protect Canadians. Uh, from the virus, uh, but uh, this could actually compromise Canada's food security.
2: This That's expert in food distribution says produce, nuts, and maybe even spices could be among the items that become hard to find.
3: So I'm expecting some empty shells. In fact, probably your listeners have actually noticed that they are empty shells at the grocery store. This vaccine mandate is just not going to help.
0: Uh, yeah, we've noticed it. Uh- To talk about this and the implications, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Ron Foxcroft. Ron, of course, is the CEO of Fluke Transport. Uh, who are being impacted, as many other companies are. Uh, Fox, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh,
3: thank you, Bill, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. And I want to be quite clear, uh, we're not being alarmist when we talk about this. We we live this in the trucking industry every single day. Um, my my people here at Fluke, uh, notably Kevin Hagen, uh, Steve Foxcroft works at Fluke, other than working the Bills games. So we're living this thing, and, and we're not crying well for not being alarmist. And, and we really do understand the problems, but I think we also understand possible solutions.
0: Uh, I was going to ask you if Steve has thought out from Saturday night, but anyway, we'll get to that in a, in a little bit later. Talk to us about the implications. And 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 by the way, you and I have had this discussion for months, of course, because the government's been hinting at doing something like this. Uh, you at Fluke and, and many of the other people we've talked to have talked to the president of the Ontario Trucking Association, the Canadian Trucking Association. Uh, they are not anti-vaxxers. In fact, they encourage vaccination. And the overwhelming majority of, of truckers are vaccinated. Uh, they're concerned about what uh, the report just talked about here, Fox, is, is, is this supply chain uh, of getting products to, to market right now. And uh, the overwhelming consensus I've heard from many people in the industry is, you know what, good idea, government. Not yet, though. Give us a chance to kind of get our ducks in a row. And they haven't done that.
3: Bill, you're an excellent communicator. You're right. I, I, I know the uh, vaccine issue, the anti-vaccine issue is a very divisive issue, but we're not going down that road. If I if I could be allowed to explain, sure. we are we are not anti-vax. Uh, I'll tell you the situation in the trucking industry. Sometimes we've been working since March 2020 to keep the supply chain going, to keep groceries in stores, to keep products in big box stores and pharmacies, and so on. We are essential we are skilled trade and we are essential and and one of the things that the your listeners uh will understand our truckers sometimes are on the road for like weeks at a time and and they're not anti-vaxxers. They're just very simply, they can't get home to, to make an appointment. Sometimes it's really hard, Bill, to make an appointment to get a vaccine. So these drivers can't get home to get a vaccine. Also, when they do get home and get an appointment, they're very concerned about losing a couple of days with the side effects The other thing, Bill, we're not being Monday morning quarterbacks and crying wolf. We understand the government's problem. We're sympathetic to the government's problem between a balance of keeping us safe and keeping these shelves stocked in grocery stores. And I I could just add, I've heard from associates all over North America, Florida, New York State, Regina, Ontario, And there's already effects, Bill. The shelves are getting, shall we use the term, unstocked. The shelves are getting bare. And this is only the beginning.
0: And I understand the conundrum that that many of the drivers are facing. Look, Fox, I live around the corner from my local pharmacy, and it still took me three weeks to get an appointment for the vaccination. And when they call one of these guys and say, okay, uh, February 2nd, well, I'm going to be in Dallas. I, I can't get vaccinated then. Uh, you know, these guys are busy. These drivers are busy on, on a consistent basis. So I can understand that it's not as easy as it might be for some other people to simply make an appointment and be there on time. Uh, because if they do, they're taking their truck off the road. And that's going to cause problems to the supply chain as well. It's a challenging industry.
3: But Bill, you know, we talk about the problems, but I also think we should talk about the solutions. And I would love it if if both governments, number one, I hope Canada and United States collaborate, and communicate effectively what the rules are. As you know, last Wednesday was a little bit of an unsettling day for us because they rescinded the law. So Mm -hmm. first things first, please, United States and Canada, please collaborate, please communicate, let us know what the rules are. Now, the other thing I'm asking sympathetically and professionally to the government's give the trucking industry a six-month exemption for this rule. And what that does, Bill, it allows the trucking industry to adjust. It allows long-distance truckers to make appointments to to get their vaccine. It allows truckers that are maybe not comfortable getting a vaccine to soften their position. It allows for a lot of other things. Most important, Bill... We're already 20,000 truck drivers short in the Canadian trucking industry. What it allows the trucking industry to do is adjust our uh, recruitment and retention policies. Because, Bill, with this law, let's face it, it's it's not very wise of us to, to hire new truckers that are going to cross the border that aren't vaccinated. So that it gives us a chance to adjust our our recruiting and retention policies. One last thing, Bill, or not a last thing, but one thing I want to (laughs) talk about. Charities are going to be impacted. I heard this weekend from Reverend Todd Bender of City Kids. And, Bill, CHML are huge supporters of City Kids. City Kids, in 2021, delivered 7,000 meals to deserving Families now, Bill. There's going to be upcoming empty shelves, but uh, a bigger problem uh, is the fact that the price of groceries and essential goods are going to skyrocket. Reverend, that's already started. Yes, and Reverend Bender explained to me they delivered those 7,000 meals. Now the the need is greater. The cost will become greater, Bill. I can't imagine what the cost of groceries and essential products in big box stores is going to cost us by the end of uh, 2022. And, and this new rule is going to impact every Canadian. And, and I am sympathetic to the government. They have to keep us safe, and they have to keep the shelves stocked with, with food because Canadians have to eat.
0: Well, your point about the the, the non profit, not for profits, is a very big concern. I mean, we've talked with Frederick Dryden from Liberty for Youth, uh, as you say, Reverend Todd Bender from from City Kids, and so many other agencies. Uh, I got an email from somebody the other day that uh, I wanted you to address as well. So, why can't you just put this stuff on trains? And my short answer to that, and I'll let you expand on this uh, a lot of the stuff does. I mean, this is what we call multimodal transportation. Uh, from where things are produced until how they finally get onto the shelves, oftentimes uses trucks and trains and sometimes even water transportation uh, to get there. But trucks are still a key part of that. And you're taking uh, a, a one of the main parts of that supply chain out of the mix when you do that uh you know you can still get the grapes from from wherever up to he- to hamilton and to london but they're going to be bad by the time they get here if we have to have delays at the border like this bill i'm glad you
3: brought that up because you know in hamilton we have the best cargo airport in all of canada we have the best port uh you know kathy puckering at the airport in hamilton at the port best port in the country but the problem is, Bill, we, uh, we deliver everything by truck to the grocery stores and big box stores. We deliver everything except babies. So ultimately, it can get here by plane and into John C. Monroe Airport. It can get here to Ian Hamilton's port, but they can't get it to the grocery store and the big box store. So we really have to count on trucks. Uh, and, and and you know at fluke with with Steve Foxcroft and Kevin Hagen, we deliver groceries, we deliver essential products so Canadians can eat and and it's really, really important also too at fox forty um we we deliver safety products like we make masks and and bill kudos to you, kudos to c h m l you know you support vaccines, you support masks. Sure. With Nico products, Joe Camillo, we make safety masks, but we truck them to United States for furtherance to 140 countries around the world so we can keep Canadians, Americans, and everybody safe. So it's really important that there's no more delays at the border. Another issue I want to talk about, there are going to, with with this new law or rule, whatever it's called, uh, there's going to be upcoming border delays as agents check the validity of vaccines. And, and I'll just give you an example. It's not that easy to cross the border. As, as of Saturday, um, all my friends that went to the Bills game had to get tested for $200 U.S. in Buffalo and then cross the border and and prove they, they're double vax. Well, uh, Bill, for the agents to check the the test and the validity of of the vaccine is going to take time. Now these are fans coming back in cars. How about trucks with with essential services? The first thing we're going to see, Bill, and I've had this uh, explained to me. Uh, Fruits and vegetables have already gone up. They tell me 7%. Can you imagine what fruits and vegetables are going to cost us if we continue with this rule?
0: Uh, Well, I I don't want to fathom that. It's going to be ridiculous. Uh, I saw Colin uh, Beatty on the – or Perambeaty, I'm sorry – I've uh, got two names here I'm looking at here. Parent Beatty, who is the president of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, speaking about this yesterday afternoon, uh, Fox, and, and basically saying, look, at, we're not advocating for the trucking industry. We're advocating for the food chain, and the trucking industry is a part of that. And he says prices are going to skyrocket. And especially he, the groceries seem to be the, the main element here uh, because we've already seen this uh, with some bare shelves. Uh, Barry Prentice is a professor of supply chain management at the University of Manitoba, uh, says it's going to be uh, problematic here. Fruit and vegetables supply chain is going to get hit harder than most others and we've already started to see this with rising prices now we're talking about affordability uh, you know we have to eat and and all of a sudden if the cost of tomatoes or grapes or whatever uh perishable fruits especially starts to skyrocket are people even going to be able to afford groceries now that's well communicated bill if i if, if
3: you could allow me to bring up one other factor you know yep. we're in a we're in a lockdown here in in Ontario. And and I'm really sympathetic to the province of Ontario because obviously their their, uh, number one mission is to keep Ontarians safe. But in the lockdown, the problem is some companies that manufacture very important products were not deemed to be essential product manufacturers, and they had to shut down. So now the products that they make that are, are deemed to be partially uh, essential are very, very hard to get. So you and I can think of examples of this right now. That, that first COVID lockdown was really difficult because so many manufacturing companies couldn't operate. Now we're into this other lockdown, and it's creating a lot of problems. I, I, I want to steal a quote from Marvin Ryder, who's on your show often, sure. and, yeah. and he's a genius. And I, I want to tell you, he, he just suggested to the Ontario government, uh, for companies that are locked down, go be who you are, operate safe, and play by the rules. And that's exactly what we try to do at our company. We operate safe, uh, we keep social distance, we play by the rules, and we wear a Fox 40 triple-layer whistle mask. And And you know what? Marvin's got it. That's a slam dunk. Thank you, Marvin, for saying that. I, I would prefer us not to be locked down. I would prefer companies, in particular, restaurants. Bill, restaurants are hanging on by a fingernail and, and because of this lockdown. That's not being critical of the province of Ontario. It's just getting the elephant out of the room and trying to be realistic about this entire
0: situation. Yeah, but what happens in a situation like a week from today, the government says they're going to reevaluate the shutdown situation? Well, if they say, okay, restaurants, you can open again. Uh, so, you know, and you and I know some fabulous folks that run restaurants here in this town. They're going to get on the phone with their supplier. And the guy's going to tell, I'm sorry, I can't get the stuff up there. You're beat. That's, uh, that's exactly. the problem. And what you guys are looking for here. Is a fair deal, and I want to reiterate that they're not saying, "Hey, leave us alone." Uh, you know, when they decided to do this with healthcare workers, they gave them a time frame of a number of months to to be able to be compliant because they understood it'd be stupid to simply say, "Okay, uh, healthcare workers, if you're not vaccinated, you're fired." You've got three months to catch up and do this, uh, yeah. and that's what happened because you can't shut down hospitals. Well, you can't shut down the supply chain for food either. You've got to be uh, as flexible with them as you were with the healthcare to say give these guys some time to be compliant so they can do that without having a negative effect on the food chain. I don't think that's
3: too much to ask. No, and that's a solution, Bill, and that's what the trucking industry is asking. We're not asking to to treat us long-term special. Uh, We are asking to be treated short-term special. Give us this six-month exemption. And here's the other thing that, you know, I, I think it's really important that we communicate this to your audience. We've been working safe in the trucking industry since march 10th 2020 our truck drivers their home and their office is the truck they're in the truck wearing a mask operating their truck safely we in the trucking industry we are not covid spreaders we work by the rules we work safe we abide by all the rules that are laid out to us. So all we're asking is, uh, on, on this situation, give us a six-month exemption to keep the supply chain going so we can keep Canadians with products in grocery stores, big-box stores, pharmacy stores, so we don't create more hardship for Canadians. I really don't think we're being unfair or being
0: unreasonable. Well, uh, the federal government's got to understand that. And, and, you know, their, their heart's in the right place. Their head is not in the right place. And that's not you saying that. That's me saying that is they've got to be understanding of the consequences of this. You know, for the minister, Mister du, Minister Duclos, to say it's the right thing to do. Yeah, well, on one level, certainly it is. But, you know, are you cutting off your nose to – or are you cutting off the supply chain? Forget about your nose, the supply chain, uh, despite yourself. I mean, we've got to be pragmatic about how this is going to work. And they did make exceptions for the supply chain and the trucking industry during the first wave. You're absolutely right. Yes. And it worked.
3: It yes. worked. Yes, Bill, I, I really want to reinforce – We're not COVID spreaders. Truckers are not COVID spreaders. We're just hard-working essential services. We are skilled trade, and we're trying to keep the supply chain going, and we're trying to keep the supply chain affordable for Canadians. That's all we're asking. And government, you're given two ears and one mouth to use proportionately. Uh, You're doing a good job. You're keeping us safe. But please listen to the trucking industry because – we had challenges. We were 20,000 drivers short already before the pandemic. Our, our industry, we got high fuel prices. We've got a lot of challenges. Please listen to us. All we want to do is help
0: Canadians. Freelance commentator uh, Lee Harding writes a great piece that uh, that appears uh, in uh, westernstandardonline.com if people want to uh, Google that and read it and you get an idea as to what the challenges are. Uh, Fox, as always, thank you so much for this. This is a very, very important issue for each and every one of us. We all have to eat, and uh, we want to make sure that there's uh, the stuff on the shelves for us to do that, and the government needs to listen to this message. Uh, thanks for this, and hopefully we'll... Uh, Have you back on a couple of days with some good news about this. Appreciate the time today.
3: Thanks for your communications,
0: Bill. We always appreciate it. You do a great job. Thanks so much. Ron Foxcroft, the CEO of Fluke Transport. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.